been a challenging year for many, and how businesses and individuals react under pressure and manage risk can truly define their future. The Biden administration has made it clear that deterring corruption and fraud through aggressive enforcement is a top priority, and the Department of Justice is ready to take action. One of the U.S. government's most powerful tools to combat fraud and abuse involving government funds is the False Claims Act. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues that have surfaced and how courts are interpreting key issues under the False Claims Act. Additionally, we'll take a look at how the new administration is reshaping False Claims Act enforcement today and in the years to come. In our last podcast of the series, we're going to look ahead at a couple of legal issues where we expect developments in 2022 to affect the way FCA cases are investigated and litigated and discuss a relatively new development in FCA practice. That is DOJ's increased scrutiny on the role of private equity firms and companies pursued in False Claims Act cases. I'm Tony Fuller, a Boston-based investigations partner here at Hogan Levels. Joining me to delve into this issue are two of my colleagues, Jonathan Diesenhaus and Emily Lyons, both based in our Washington, D.C. office. Jonathan is a partner and a leading False Claims Act litigator he defends key TAM cases brought by whistleblowers and the government and federal courts across the United States. Emily is counsel who handles government investigations with a particular focus on life sciences clients. So today we're going to talk about two important FCA legal issues, what we expect to see unfold with respect to those issues in 2022, and what that means for our clients who face FCA risk in their businesses. But before we get to that, I want to first discuss an interesting topic that's come to light these past couple of years, which is the role of private equity firms and how DOJ believes their activities have become fertile ground for FCA enforcement. As private equity investments in healthcare and life science industries has grown, so has the role they play in the operations of the companies in which they invest, assigning board members and corporate officers to turn around underperforming businesses. But turning around underperforming companies and highly regulated industries already under intense DOJ scrutiny is proving to present some risks under the KETAM statute. So, Jonathan, what are you seeing in the private equity space? Tony, we've seen settlements in the past couple of years and then some public statements by DOJ officials who are trying to explain them. Um, DOJ seems to want to send a message that enforcement is coming for investors and investment firms involved in these turnaround projects. But not every investor needs to be afraid to be a defendant just because they have deep pockets. The message that DOJ seems to be sending and the language in these settlements seems designed to distinguish passive investors and board members from investment firms um, and individuals representing them that take an active role in the management of a portfolio company when that portfolio company submits false claims to a government program like to Medicare or Medicaid. And where that firm or individual knows about or disregards the impropriety of those claims. DOJ seems to be saying that if the government investigation reveals that agents of the private equity entity pressured managers of the portfolio company to take compliance risks in order to generate more revenue, DOJ is going to look at the investment firms to the source of that pressure as potential defendants in a False Claims Act investigation or lawsuit. 
and it may expect them to pay for causing injury to the federal programs in addition to whatever payment they extract from the portfolio company. So did the law change in the recent years that's given the DOJ an advantage in pursuing investors? What's happened here? No, the the law actually hasn't changed. And DOJ is arguing that it's actually using existing remedies and theories under the False Claims Act and only going after entities liable under a traditional interpretation of the False Claims Act. Previously, we saw only a few cases where DOJ or even whistleblowers sued investors who had a stake in healthcare companies. The law treats corporate entities separately, and most often when investors or owners are brought into cases, there's a piercing the corporate veil theory, which is a theory that's hard for the government and for whistleblowers to prove. But recently, what the government has been using is under the False Claims Act, it provides for liability to be imposed on any person who causes a false claim to be submitted. So it's not just the person or company that actually submits the false claims. The case law has shown that this cause to be submitted language is actually very broad. So now with a few settlements and courts at least partly endorsing the theory, at least at the motion to dismiss stage, DOJ seems to be signaling that it's going to scrutinize the influence that private equity firms have on the operations of companies to see if there's enough evidence to hold private equity firms directly liable versus indirectly liable, which would be using the um, piercing the corporate veil theory. So what DOJ seems to be saying is that an entity that pushes a claim submitter to take on compliance risk can be liable along with the entity if false claims are the result of that compliance risk. What, if anything, is new or different about these theories of liability that um, have been presented in the cases where these private equity firms have actually been at the table? We're really talking about a new universe of defendants, not a new legal theory. What's happened is that the Justice Department and whistleblower attorneys are seizing on facts that they might have overlooked in the past and using the language of the statute to reach this additional universe of defendants. Maybe call it a broader lens that's being applied to the language of the statute than a new legal theory. Um, And they're using it to reach out to all those individuals and entities that they believe played an active role in causing false claims to be submitted. For example, DOJ uses the theory to reach subcontractors who knowingly cause a prime contractor's claims to be false. And they use it to pursue pharmaceutical manufacturers in some of those big headline-grabbing cases. In those pharma cases, the government alleges that the facts show manufacturers know that a pharmacy's claims will be false when they're off-label claims because those off-label uses of their products are not covered by Medicaid for example. So they go after the manufacturer instead of the pharmacy. Pharmacist is just filling a prescription. So what's interesting to me in this context is the way this new application of cause claims to be submitted liability to pursue a new class of potential defendants, the the investor class, call it, um, started in the last administration But I think we're going to see more of it because it aligns closely with policy pronouncement that 
DOJ's current leadership have made. For example, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco made statements last October that in white collar cases, which False Claims Act cases are the civil analog to criminal fraud cases, in those cases, the department will be looking with renewed vigor to pursue and prosecute everyone involved in a fraud scheme. The private equity line of settlements shows us that this universe of, quote, everyone involved, close quote, can include investors, including private equity firms, when those investors induce or participate in conduct at a portfolio company that they own. And those defendants may also have deeper pockets than the companies in which they invest, uh, which makes them an attractive target. The lesson to be learned from these cases is that turning around a failing or struggling company like private equity investment firms are want to do needs to be done in a way that combines both new tactics and cost cutting with training and monitoring and other compliance activities. The investors want to demonstrate to both the managers of the companies they acquire and the customers of those companies, the regulators and law enforcement, the goal of the turnaround exercise is to do it in a fully compliant manner. It's not to turn a company around at all costs, regardless of legal risk or risk of of other misconduct. It's a real minefield for a lot of these portfolio companies who who may not have previously invested in the healthcare space and, and where other businesses, certain conduct is, is legal, but not so in the healthcare space. Well, this is a good segue to discuss the two hot button legal issues that are going to be maybe expounded on in the, in the coming year. Sienter really just means knowledge um, on the part of the entity or person who's alleged to have taken part or taken the action that's at, that's at issue. Materiality is the other issue that may be... Uh, decided in some respect uh, in this coming year, which again, for the non-lawyer, just means whether the conduct information or whatever it might be at issue, whether that was important to the person to whom it was directed to. So there have been some important developments in the law on both of these topics in the False Claims Act context. But let's start with knowledge, uh, the Sienter knowledge issue first. Emily, there's a really uh, important case out of the Seventh Circuit with a catchy name called SuperValue. Can you walk us through what that case was about and what it means on this issue? Super value involves a hot button legal issue for the Department of Justice. And that issue is whether or not false claims enter is met where a party puts forth an objectively reasonable interpretation of a statutory or regulatory requirement that's ambiguous. But there are also allegations or in the case of the summary judgment motion, evidence that the party knew or recklessly disregarded or acted with deliberate ignorance that it was violating the requirement. So there's an objectively reasonable interpretation of a statute that the party puts forth, but at the same time, there's evidence that the party knew that it was violating that requirement. SuperValue is a two-to-one panel decision where the majority and the dissent hotly contest whether the objective reasonableness standard applies where there's evidence or allegations of scienter. 
The majority concluded that it didn't matter if the party puts forth an objectively reasonable interpretation of an otherwise ambiguous statutory regulatory requirement, then that's enough. Um, that scienter isn't met in that case. The dissent um, had a fiery opinion that characterized the ruling as encouraging, quote, bad faith, catch us if you can, approach to public funds. So the dissent did not take issue with the fact that an objectively reasonable interpretation of an otherwise ambiguous statute or regulatory provision could signal the lack of requisite scienter. Rather, the dissent took issue with objective reasonableness when coupled with evidence or allegations of subjective bad faith and knowledge that the party was actually violating the law. So this case, there likely will be a petition to the Supreme Court. And if the back and forth with the majority and the dissent in the super value decision is any indication about how the Supreme Court justices will approach the issue, this should make for a good Supreme Court showdown. Wasn't there another circuit that recently considered the application of the objective reasonableness enter standard similar to super value? Yes. In fact, the Fourth Circuit just came down with an opinion on January 25th. Um, and this case is called uh, United States XRL Sheldon v. Allergan Sales. The opinion started off by stating that um, the court was going to be siding with every other circuit to consider the issue. And it held yet again that an objectively reasonable interpretation of an otherwise ambiguous statute precludes the finding of a knowing submission of a false claim. And the court also specifically held that it precludes any inquiry into subjective intent, similar to the super value opinion. So the court applied the standard to the facts, which concerned the Medicare drug rebate statute. And specifically, it concerned the stacking of rebates, which is a, a somewhat complicated um, government pricing concept. But the court found that CMS knew that drug manufacturers were not aggregating or stacking discounts given to different entities along the drug supply chain. And that when manufacturers asked CMS to clarify whether stacking was appropriate, CMS failed to clarify and thereby maintain strategic ambiguity. So the court found Allergan's interpretation to be objectively reasonable. Although the courts in SuperValue and in Sheldon were, were pretty firmly on the objective reasonable in this side, there's still at least one case that we're keeping our eye out on in the uh, district court for the District of Columbia, and that's Marcel v. Norton Lifelock, where the court firmly rejected what the courts held in SuperValue and Sheldon. Let's uh, turn to materiality. In the last year, we've seen developments towards what I guess is referred to as the holistic approach. What are we talking about when we're talking about a holistic approach advocated by the government in terms of materiality? Materiality entered the False Claims Act litigation world um, with a Supreme Court case a few years ago called Universal Health Services versus Escobar. Um, the, the question in Escobar was, when would it be a false claim for a defendant to bill the government, even if it was out of compliance with a regulation or a contract provision, although the face of the claim didn't have any specific representation about compliance on it. And, and what the Supreme Court said is that if compliance with a particular contract provision or regulation or statute mattered to the government in its payment decision, if it was material, then 
there could be false claims act liability. The claim shouldn't have been submitted or the government would have paid it had the government known about the non-compliance. But if the defendant knew it was out of compliance, knew it was important to the government that it be in compliance um, and submitted a claim anyway, there could be liability under the False Claims Act for damages, for treble damages and penalties, but only when it was material. The court then in a footnote talked about factors to be considered in determining whether some statute regulation or contract provision mattered to the payment decision the government was making when a claim was submitted. And some courts went ahead and seized on uh, that language and started dismissing cases litigated by whistleblowers even before there was any discovery because, for example, the government knew that there was an allegation of noncompliance and paid the claim anyway, or because the agency became aware through the government's investigation of a whistleblower's allegations that something was actually happened, but continued to pay the claims. Um, and so evidence like this supported an inference that the government knew about the alleged falsity, but paid the claim anyway, and so therefore it wasn't material. Because of the way KETAM litigation, whistleblower litigation works, because the government almost always knows about an allegation of fraud before a whistleblower starts litigating one of these cases after the government declines to pick up the lawsuit. There has been a lot of litigation about how much knowledge the government has of a particular noncompliance when it pays a claim and whether that's enough to say the government doesn't care about uh, compliance with that provision when it pays a claim. If the government doesn't care, if it doesn't matter, there's no False Claims Act liability. After all that litigation, where DOJ and the whistleblower community really pushed back on the notion that knowing about noncompliance from a, a whistleblower investigation alone should show materiality, DOJ and several courts of appeals have now landed on this notion that you referred to of a holistic view. And what they're saying is that sometimes an agency needs to keep paying claims to advance its public mission. For example, a nursing home uh, in an isolated rural community is the only place for long-term care. And there may be an allegation that makes its claims false and that makes its owners subject to liability under the False Claims Act. But if the government stops paying the nursing home, paying the bills, the nursing home will close and there'll be nowhere for these patients to go. So in those circumstances, the courts um, at the urging of DOJ are trying to create a situation where a court will assess materiality, whether the compliance issue matters to payment. They'll assess that in this context of sometimes the government has to pay anyway, and materiality needs to be judged in that more holistic view. The problem for us as, as litigating lawyers is that means that you have to go into discovery in many of these cases to get a, a view uh, of all of the facts and circumstances that could have informed the government's payment decisions if the government happened to have knowledge from the whistleblower 
a complaint, for example, that there was a non-compliance afoot, and nevertheless, the government continued to pay claims. Um, what that means is uh, litigation is more expensive for defendants, for our clients. It's also more burdensome for the government agency, but that seems to be where government and the courts want to be be taking things these days. So materiality is still alive as an issue to be litigated in these cases, but it, it's not a, a silver bullet that'll lead to an early end. It certainly will be interesting to see how those two legal issues will be resolved, if at all, and what practical impact there will be in terms of how these False Claims Act cases are resolved and at what stage. So I want to just thank you both for joining me today. It's been a great discussion. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in any of the issues raised during this podcast, we would love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to any of our podcast participants to talk through any of the questions or comments you may have. For additional analysis on this topic and others around the FCA, please download our latest publication, False Claims Act Guide 2021 and the Road Ahead from HoganLevels.com.